This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Well, good evening, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm the deacon of the church, and I'd like to welcome you to our study on the book of Acts. Neville is also my co-conspirator in crime. He is also going to be helping as we go along the way. Um, before we begin, we will do an honored Christian tradition, which is? Pray. We shall pray. Which is good uh, to remind ourselves that God is present. He needs to hear us as we want to hear from him. So can I have a volunteer to pray? Great. Holy Father, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that um, you gift us with many blessings. Thank you for the gift of your Son. God, I pray that tonight our ears would be open to hear from you and that, um, yeah, that we would each learn something new about your spirit, your character this evening. We love you in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, there is a little handout which we, uh, I just made some notes from what things we discussed from last week. So, who was not here last week? Okay, great, so we have an opportunity to go over some of the things that we said. So we'll just read it out as we go. And it'll also be good for the recording. So the book of Acts, we discussed, is often called the Acts of the Apostles. Yet, if we're honest, so few of the original apostles are actually mentioned in this book. Most of the book actually focuses on Paul. The Gospels depict Jesus teaching his disciples. Following the Gospels, there is a sudden lack of information about them. Right? Jesus spends his ministry in the Gospels with 12 disciples. And once we actually finish the, 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 the Gospels, we hear very little about the disciples at all. In fact, we switch gears and we go to a guy whom uh, Jesus had not taught with his 12 disciples. The purpose of Acts is not to tell us of apostles. If it was, it would tell us about the apostles. So what is its purpose? So then we discussed Acts as a genre. What type of genre of literature is it? Um, people know what a genre is, yes? Yes. And it is sacred history. It is in, in the Bible that is sacred, and it is the history of of, uh, of, of something. We read sacred history differently than we read a gospel or an epistle. How do we know that? For example, how do we choose leadership in the book of Acts when we need to replace an apostle? We draw lots. Yet that is not the process of choosing leadership uh, in most churches today or businesses or any Christian mission organization. What we do do is we advertise, we do a job description, we actually interview, we want references. Right? But actually what's in the Bible is you cast lots. But it's in the history portion. And because it's in the history portion, we don't approach it in the same way as we would if Jesus had said, this is how you choose your leaders. If he had said that, we would do it. Okay? Sacred history is theology. What does that mean? What we leave in and what we leave out is important. And we discussed a couple of examples. For example, David has an affair with Bathsheba in Samuel, but not in Chronicles. 
Okay? So by the time you come back from exile, you want to rewrite the Bible, and that's what Chronicles is, they suddenly decide, don't like the idea of David doing something like this, he's a hero. So we just don't mention it at all. Okay. Uh, in 2 Samuel 24, God instigates David to number the fighting men, while in Chronicles, it is Satan. And so we can see that theologically, we don't like the idea of God doing something like this, so we need to make sure it's the bad guy. Okay. And so sacred history is theology. As well as whatever else the book of Acts is, there are reasons why it includes what it does, and reasons why it does not include certain things. So what is the purpose of Acts? Well, it could be many things. So when you go through uh, the commentaries, and I did that during the week, I went to a couple of libraries and I just pulled out all the commentaries on Acts, got a big pile and went to the front page and said what they said the purpose of Acts was. That was quite a different group depending on who was writing the commentary. It was a history of the early church. It was a theological move from Jerusalem to Rome. Think about that, hey? Right? The idea that we start in Jerusalem, but don't worry folks, we end up in Rome. And so what does that tell you theologically? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong in Rome, right? <laughs> All right. It was a focus on some of them was the Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. Right? The, the idea of uh, uh, deciding can Gentiles be included without actually becoming Jews. That was the, the more important uh, idea of what the, what the book was about. There was a focus on the success of Gentile ministry and the, the lack of success on Jewish ministry. There was a theology of the, plan, of the salvation plan of God that he was going to start from Jerusalem, go out to Judea and to the ends of the earth, and this was his plan all along. And we also had a discussion, and we will continue to have this discussion, that is the possibility that this book is a defense of Paul, and that perhaps the purpose that it is written and the purpose that it is recorded in so many copies around the place is that it was actually used as a defense. Acts tells us how the gospel goes west, at the end of the uh, book, we know how the gospel gets to Rome. But, the book, but the, our sacred history, that is in our Bible, does not inform us of how the good news goes in other directions. But we know that it did. It's just that our texts don't say it. So the sources of Acts, who, where is Luke drawing his material from? Uh, there are no quotes of the gospels, even though Luke wrote one. He doesn't quote himself. There are no quotes of Paul's letters. You never have Luke uh, writing, while Paul was in such and such a place, he decided to write some letters, and here's a copy of them. Okay? He, there is no direct quote of Jesus. There is a, in, in terms of the sources for Acts, the versions of it, there are Western Alexandrian texts, and they differ in length and inclusion of when Luke actually joins with Paul. Western texts, which are the ones preserved predominantly uh, in, by the Ethiop e Egyptians, uh, have Luke joining them in Acts 11. In the rest of the Alexandrian texts, which are shorter, we have Luke joining in Acts 16. Who wrote the book? Uh, well, we think it's Luke. There are some commentaries who, who disagree. Luke is a Latin name. He's a, he's a full name in Latin. In, in Greek, Lucas, but in, in Latin, Lucius. Now, we had a discussion on whether he was Jewish or whether he was a Gentile. Epiphanius wrote, who was a historian, that, he, that Luke is an Antioch 
Hellenized Jew. Uh, and that he was actually one of the 70 disciples of Jesus, which is also the tradition in the Orthodox churches today. Uh, even though Luke's name is Latin, please also note that Paul is a Latin name for small one. Okay? What's Paul's real name? Shaul. And then he gets a nickname, Paulus, because he probably was small. Then again, he could have been like little John and been quite tall. But um. he, he does say in one place about his physical presence is unimpressive. Yes, that's true. Yes, so it could be that the reason he was given that name is by his compatriots, who sort of kept calling him little one, little one, little one, which in Latin, Paulus, 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 and that stuck. Okay. He, he was Tarsus as a Hellenized Jew. Hellenized Jews mean that they are familiar with Hellenism. That doesn't mean that they believe in Hellenistic gods. It means that they also can do Latin, Greek, Hebrew, you know, and, uh, and, and, and know uh, Greek material, which Paul does quote, actually. He's very familiar with, with Hellenized customs. There are other Acts sacred histories, not just our book of Acts, and I uh, went and found a few. The ones I thought that were of note that are actually being preserved and used by various churches, not too far away from us, are the Acts of Paul, which was first quoted by Tertullian in uh, around 160. This includes the missing letters from and to the Corinthians. So if you want to see the dialogue to and from the Corinthians, um, so 3 Corinthians is in that text, and is preserved by the Egyptian Coptic Church to this day. Okay, and then the other one is the Acts of Thomas, which is quoted also by Epiphanius around 340, which details Thomas in Syria and India. So we all know that Thomas got to India, yes? Well, how do we know that? Apart from the tradition that the Indians have, but it's only oral. They have no written source. The odd, odd thing is, the only written source that tells us that Thomas actually got to India is in Syriac, okay? and it's actually preserved by the Syrian Orthodox Church, so our brothers and sisters who are currently in, in Syria. And some are streams of the Greek Orthodox. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in Acts than any other book. So 40 times, 13 in Luke. So between the two sections, Luke has 53 mentions of the Holy Spirit. And yet, comparatively, Matthew, Mark and John get less than five. And Paul, all of Paul put together is 16. Hebrews is five. Peter is two. And Revelation, zero. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit once. Acts therefore describes how the Holy Spirit is at work amongst his people. And uh, so what we're going to do is we read the uh, book the whole, the, of Acts. Whenever we come to the words Holy Spirit, we're going to stop. And we're going to examine its context. And we're going to work out what exactly the Holy Spirit is doing. Um, I think that was a fair dis description of what we did last week. Was there anything else? That I missed? I need to add for recording. There were a lot of maps presented by Neville, um, uh, which he didn't allow us to keep, but that's okay because they will come back when we do need them. And uh, so, so those are not included. Uh, so let's ask a question. What, does the, what do you think the Holy Spirit does? Without thinking too hard. Give it your first I think the Holy Spirit does this. And we'll write it up. Okay. Go for it. He's an enabler. Enabler. 
and he's a he's a motivator. A motivator. He reveals Jesus to us, and he reminds us of the things that Jesus said. He reveals and reminds. Teaches, guides, leads us in the truth. Okay, he guides towards truth. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's he's what is he doing? Conforming. Conforming. Convicting. He's convicting. The counselor. He's a counselor. Oh, okay. Comforter. He's a comforter. The latter Adam has turned into the life-giving spirit. The what? What? The later Adam. Jesus was the later Adam. Oh yes, the last Adam. Last, last Adam. Is yeah. a life-giving spirit. Has turned into a life-giving spirit. Yes. But what, is that the Holy Spirit? It's a it's, it's indwelling spirit. Indwelling. Okay. He's also ministering through the church to the lost. And okay, he's ministering to the lost. And to each other. He points us to Jesus. Reveals, guides, points, ministering to the lost through the church. Okay. Empowers. Uh, yes, he empowers. And when he empowers, what does he do? What does it look like? He regenerates. Regenerates? What does that look like? Regenerating means uh, you are dead, but you are regenerated. You come alive. Sure. Uh -huh. What does that look like? <laughs> uh, what, what does that look like? What does it mean that he motivates like you? Boldness to share Boldness. He gives you boldness. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So he gives you boldness. What does it mean to motivate you? What does it actually look like? I mean, we say these things. What does he actually do? It gives us zeal. Zeal. Okay. Motivates you with some zeal. Okay. To share the gospel. It would put encourages. Yeah. Sure. Empowers, encourages, and how does he encourage? How did you feel encouraged? Like if he gives a word to another person in the body. Ah, so he gives, word he gives words. That gives boldness to speak. Mm -hmm. That would be encouraging, I guess. He speaks. Anyone heard the Holy Spirit speak? Come to general propagation. Okay, so unpack that one for me. <laughs> <laughs> It's a channel for propagation through the spirit. Propagates. Propagates. He propagates? Yeah. So the spirit propagates to different disciples. Yeah. yeah okay. Revive or propagate. He propagates. Because. And propagates. Propagates. Okay, anything else you think the Holy Spirit does? I haven't heard gifts yet. Oh my gosh, you've got a room full of Christians and not one person says, The gifts of the Spirit! He didn't come to reveal himself, but to reveal Christ. Yet reveals Messiah, yet Christ. He enables us to do signs and wonders. Okay, there you go. Here we got uh, signs and wonders. Okay. And who's doing those? The Spirit. Yeah, the Spirit's doing them, but who's he doing it here? Who's actually doing them? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is doing, and yes, who else? Right. Because yeah. remember, Jesus said, you're going to do greater things. Interesting. And through him we bear fruit, you know, think of the fruits of the Spirit. Fruit? Okay, fruits of the Spirit, and what do they look like? There's a list of nine. Yeah, there's a list of nine, yeah. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, yes. But what does that actually look like? Now, we say all these words. Right? What does it actually physically look like? You know, see, when you're, when you're in this country and, and you're trying to tell complete non-believers about the Holy Spirit, they ask you, what does he do? And you say, well, he brings peace. Oh, yeah, what does that look like? You know, because it's, hard, it's easy to say things. It's harder to actually explain it. Sometimes you just have to show them. But anyway, keep going. Is there anything else Holy Spirit does? It's only as we abide in Christ and in His love. Okay, so there's a, a abiding. So you're abiding in the Messiah. Growing grace. Growing grace, yes. Sure. The Spirit help us to conform us to a new image. Okay, conform to an image. Okay. So that we actually look like the Messiah, more of Him, less of us. Okay. Correct, he did. Without me, you can so do nothing. Focus yeah. is not yeah. the Holy Spirit, it's on Christ. Right. Sure. But the t today's topic is what is the Holy Spirit doing? Mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. Helps us Sorry? Helps us pray. Helps us pray. Interesting. So is that what, is that what it does for you? Mm -hmm. Right. So how does the Holy Spirit help us pray? We don't have to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us. The yeah. For us. yeah, that's right. So there's the Spirit interceding even when we blow our prayers. Yeah. So, which is an interesting thought when you think about it. Dear Lord, I'd really like a Mercedes. And the Holy Spirit's going, Oh, for crying out loud, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Give that guy a Mercedes. And the Spirit in us also help us to 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 recognize what you are doing right and wrong you're condemned you can condemn yourself what you're doing wrong because the spirit knows ah, anointing the spirit yes. in you so what how do we say that in this is so real that affects he convicts convince. convicting convicting so we do something wrong and then the spirit inside of us so yeah sometimes a bit of a smack on the side of our head well, sometimes the spirit through one of you guys, Aaron, you blew it. <laughs> the Bible says that God judges the righteous, but he's angry with the wicked every day. And I remember <laughs> I was once felt rather um, convicted about something that I felt perhaps was wrong. But a brother from Bethlehem, actually, he gave me the word of the Lord, and the Lord said, you have a, a pure heart and a deep faith. And uh, another brother, also our brother, he gave me a word from the Lord uh, that I was innocent. Okay. That, uh, it's, uh, it's, the Lord wants to build us up in yep. the most holy Christian faith. And we have an enemy 
Yep. And there are um, human <laughs> enemies. Who uh, want yep. To human and powers. Crush the true Christians. Uh, yep. But God has His people who yep. will, through the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit will encourage us. Yep. So, so you see in, in something that in your life that the other brothers were coming in and encouraging. They were words, uh, of, knowledge. Yeah. words of knowledge. Yes. Sharing with you, yeah, building up the body. He brings life. Brings life. Okay, how does this Holy Spirit bring life? <laughs> Regeneration. Regeneration. Okay, is that is that what you mean? Was that what you? It says propagation. That's that's you go there. Okay. Fill us with your life. Okay. The Holy Spirit. I was just going to say discernment. Discernment. Okay. Discerning spirit. Okay. The Holy Spirit brings discernment. Okay. And what does that look like in the life of a believer or community? I think when you're connected to the Holy Spirit or listening, then you enter situations in life um, with open ears to hearing that kind of tug of that's correct or that's not or. Mm -hmm. Um, so it brings you wisdom, I guess, heavenly wisdom through the Spirit. Mm -hmm. I think the Spirit in the Book of Acts is already went through the process. It's from the divine nature coming to the humanity. Jesus was so perfect humanity when he was on earth. In the Old Testament, since the Book of Genesis, we call the Spirit of God. In Old Testament, we call the Spirit of Jehovah, which means you may The one that came, the big, is was one to be. And when Jesus was a, a divine, you know, it, it's a humanity, it's called the Spirit of Jesus. Then Jesus crucified yep. and ascended, it's called the Spirit of Christ. Yes, there are, in the Bible, there are lots yeah. of words. So it's process. Yes. So, have to be the spirits full of the humanity yeah. and divinity. Yes. So it's a combination of humanity and divinity. Right. When he's come to us, that's why he can understand our witness as a person. Sure. Yeah. The, yeah, we are focusing, though, not on all the terms called Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Wisdom, Spirit of Truth, but the term the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible three times, and in each time it is only ever mentioned with a possessive. That is, it's your Holy Spirit or his Holy Spirit, but it's never the Holy Spirit. The actual term the Holy Spirit actually appears in Second Temple period Jewish literature. It's in New Testament, but it is not unique to the New Testament. So we'll read a few of those in a minute. Yeah. Right. Should I say that uh, spirit right now is united? It's a God spirit, it's a spirit with big S, right? So God created us with a small S. We have a spirit of man right, in right. us. Yeah. So the big spirit now coming to us, he's dwelling in us. Yes. Can I say that? Well, he would all say that. No, Bible doesn't say that. But it was that kind of quality that the spirit turned into much more fullness. Right, well, we will see when we get into the, into the, into the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit Filling, empowering, coming upon all these kinds of uh, things. And we are a temple. And we are a temple of so the Holy Spirit. Yes. Mm -hmm. The phrase I would use that covers quite a few of these is 
their inner witness, I mean, witnessing to the character of Christ or truth. Right. You know, the nature and the life of Christ. Okay. You know, it's so a way of knowing things that you wouldn't otherwise have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John the Baptist said he baptized in water. Well, Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Then fire. And it's a real experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was brought up Anglican and um, christened in the Anglican Church and confirmed by the bishop in the early teens. I don't know if they have that anymore. And, um, and then you were allowed to have Holy Communion. Well, I, we always knelt around the altar for Communion. And um, I remember I could not lift my eyes up to heaven. Mm -hmm. I felt something was wrong. So I was... <laughs> You know, had hand, hands laid on me by the bishop. And, and later you were baptized with the Spirit and that changed? That's it. I, I, um, mm -hmm. I went to, when I was 21, I went to live in London. And um, I wasn't sh sh sure if I should stay in London or not. Mm -hmm. And in Westminster Abbey, they have a place where you can pray, yep. public prayer. And I prayed and asked the Lord, should I remain in London or should I go back to Northern Ireland? And when I got up, I was sure I had to remain in London. And that same summer, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, there you go. That's and good. I believe God honoured the laying on of hand, hands of the mm -hmm. bishop, actually, okay. because I didn't need hands laid on, on me. When I ask the Lord to... Okay. Well, we will, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll have a look at some different encounters. Such a dear man. We, after the confirmation, we had tea in the uh, church hall. And I saw them... <laughs> I sat in his chair by mistake. I saw the uh, com, 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 comfortable... Sorry. Uh, comfortable chair. And I sat down. And one of the girls came over to me and said, Caroline, you're sitting on, in, on the... Um, bishop's throne. Bishop's. <laughs> yeah. And the bishop saw me. I was, and he came and he said, I'm going to bring you a cup of tea. On mm -hmm. off he went and, and brought, <laughs> brought me a cup of tea. He was just... The, and I could see Christ in his eyes. He was the dearest man. He really was. Great. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, in terms of uh, our continued study here, the what do we think the Holy Spirit does? I'll make a list of those and hand them out again next week to say this is what we thought it was. Okay. And um, so, Holy Spirit is not mentioned much in the Hebrew Bible. The Spirit of God is. Various other spirits are, but not the term the Holy Spirit. So, where does it come from? It comes from the Second Temple period. Uh, which is the bit um, between once we come back from Babylon and rebuild the temple. There's about a 500-year period, 560-year period, known as the Second Temple Period. In that period, many other books are written. Not uh, the Bible doesn't finish at Malachi. It does in our Bibles. But during this period, people are talking and discussing and learning and asking questions. Prior to the Second Temple Period, uh, when God's presence was defined, 
whenever God appeared, what did he appear in? How did God appear before people? Cloud. Cloud. Yeah. God appeared in a cloud. Or sometimes it was called the kavod, the uh, glory, which is not such a good translation. Yes, the Shekinah. The Shekinah, yeah, that is a uh, late, that's actually a rabbinic term. We'll get, yeah, it's a rabbinic term. And we'll get to that, get to that as well. Okay. What about epiphanies like appeared to Abraham? Right, well, sometimes the text says Melchapanim, the angel of the presence, or the angel of the presence. So some, and sometimes it talks about the Lord appearing. But usually in things like the Mount Sinai experience, you have clouds appearing, or God talks through a burning bush, or something like that. And then when you build a... And the, the presence of the Lord was always in connected to what building? Temple. Temple. Temple, okay, or the sanctuary, the tabernacle. And so you build a tabernacle, and then a cloud uh, fills it, or a, the honor of the Lord fills it. And so when you, when you, in the Hebrew Bible, when you talk about temple or tabernacle and you talk about God and his presence, it's always the kovod, the honor, or the cloud. Okay. But when you talk about God outside the temple, he changes form. You get melech You get this angel of the presence. You get the spirit, the ruach. Or what's the other word for ruach in English? Breath. breath. Okay, the breath of God. So when God is inside the, the temple, the Bible describes him as a cloud or full of honor. But then when he's operating outside, he's operating as a, as a spirit. Uh, and that's fine until something big happens to the temple, which was what? Destruction. Yeah. So now the temple's destroyed. And suddenly all that beautiful theology that this is where God lives, this is where his honor is, this is where he wants everybody to appear before him, suddenly is shattered. Where is God if you've just tore his house down? And so the people in Babylon suddenly have a theological problem. And they, and they begin to have an inward look at, oh my gosh, where's God now? And so you begin to go back into the Bible to start looking for where's God? Where, and they begin to begin what they call the Second Temple Period, exegesis, which is what influences our Bible. Okay. That's the world that we're, we're living in. Okay. The uh, revelation uh, that Ezekiel received during the exile sees these wheels implying that this is a mobile God that can go in any direction effortless, effortlessly. And the implication is that He's there with him in exile. In fact, he can be anywhere, sees everything, goes anywhere. Yep. That's where you get this idea that God is actually all over the place. And then you start going back into the text and saying, well, God was already there. And so, for example, in the Parashat Shavuah, the Jewish Torah portion that was about three weeks ago, um, it says, uh, God says to, says to Moses, come to Pharaoh. Bo la paro. Not lech la Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh, but come to Pharaoh. So where was God? With Pharaoh. And so they start looking at these texts and going, oh my gosh. Where, wherever we thought God was not, he was there. Whenever we thought God was silent, he appears. 
and they begin to pay much more closer attention to their texts. And they start having some uh, very interesting uh, Bible studies. Because they start saying that uh, if God's presence was in the temple, he has to now be present with his people because he hasn't left them. He's everywhere. So in the Passover narrative, when the, when the Jewish people leave Egypt, who goes with them? God. God is, and what's, what's in front of the children of Israel? A cloud. Pillars of clouds. Pillars of clouds. Yeah. So we'll have a few little examples uh, in the second noble period Jewish literature. Uh, we might hand some of these out if people would like to. You only have a few, so please only take uh, share them if you can. Okay. This will hopefully. Uh, I picked up a few. Quotes from the Maccabees, Jubilees, and the Wisdom of Solomon, and a Qumran hymn to, to, to show the movement of the presence of God from a cloud to being a spirit, to being everywhere, to being in us, and then having some sort of various properties. It'll give just a little overview as to how Jewish people were thinking of the word Holy Spirit by the time you get to Jesus. Okay. All right. So in Maccabees, at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, We know from the records that Jeremiah the prophet instructed the people who were taken into exile to hide some of the fire from the altar, as we have just mentioned. We also know that he taught them God's law, warned them not to be deceived by the ornamented gold and silver idols, which they would see in the land of their exile, and he urged them never to abandon the Torah, the law. <coughs> These same records also tell us that Jeremiah, acting under divine guidance, commanded the tent of the Lord's presence and the covenant box to follow him to the mountain where Moses had looked down on the land which God had promised our people. Ooh. So now you all wanted to know where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, yes, the Ethiopians think that they have it. Uh, Maccabees uh, implies that it was taken by Jeremiah and hidden in Jordan. When Jeremiah got to the mountain, he found a huge cave, and there he hid the tent of the Lord's presence, the covenant box, and the altar of incense. Then he sealed up the entrance. Some of the Jeremiah's friends tried to follow him and mark the way, but they could not find the cave. Then when Jeremiah learned what they had done, he reprimanded them, saying, No one must know about this place until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. At that time, he will reveal where these things are hidden, and the dazzling light of his presence will be seen in the cloud, as it was in the time of Moses and on the occasion when Solomon prayed that the temple might be dedicated in holy splendor. So here you have the presence of the Lord is in cloud, right? which is normal, which you get from Hebrew Bible. Then in Jubilees, okay, we'll have a look at, uh, can someone open their Bibles to Exodus 19? So in, in, in uh, Jubilees, 
Jubilees is uh, another, these, these books are written in, uh, recorded in Septuagint, which means that they were alive and well about two to three hundred years prior to Jesus, and they are recorded from whatever Semitic languages into Greek, which is what they are mostly preserved in today. Most, of the, most times we find these copies in, in Greek, except for Jubilees, which is also in Ethiopian uh, as well. And in Jubilees says, it came to pass in the first year of the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt, in the third month, on the 16th day of the month, that God spoke to Moses, saying, Come up to me on the mount. I will give you two tablets of stone of the law and of the commandments, which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses went up onto the mount of God, and the glory of the Lord abode on the mountain, and a cloud overshadowed it. And he called to Moses on the seventh day out of the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a flaming fire on top of the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days, forty nights. God taught him the earlier and later histories of the division of all the days of the law and of the testimony. Okay, so here in this one, we see that God is speaking from cloud. That's where his presence was. That's where his voice is. Compare that to the actual text of the Bible in Exodus, which says that in the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. There they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. When Moses went up to the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Okay, so the Hebrew is Minhaha. So in the actual original text, where does God speak from? A mountain. Right? So Jubilee changes it to being a cloud. Okay, and, uh, and then verse 9. Switches it, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and uh, will always put their trust in you. And Moses said it to the people. Like, so we get a, the idea that God is going to come and speak in a cloud. And yet in verse 18, we now suddenly discover that uh, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. smoke. Okay. The smoke billowed up from the, from the mountain and... Uh, and then God spoke. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him from the smoke. Okay? So they choose they choose different different words. So the uh, the Bible, the actual text of the Bible we have, has God speaking in various things. He speaks from a bush. He speaks from a mountain. He says he's going to appear in a cloud, but actually speaks from smoke. And then as you get into the second temple period, they decide, no, wait, let's all just coalesce it together. Um, God is doing it all through a cloud. Clouds is how he appeared in the tabernacle. That's where his presence was. That's where his voice is going to come from. So they, they re rewrite it. Later on, uh, uh, not too long ago, after Jubilees, another book, Wisdom of Solomon. Here's the King James Version. Um, it says, uh, Love righteousness, ye that are the judges of the earth. Think of the Lord with a good heart, and in simplicity of heart seek him. For he will be found of them that tempt him not, and sheweth himself unto such as do not distrust him. For would thoughts separate from God, his power, when it is tried, he reproveth the unwise. For into a malicious soul wisdom shall not enter, nor dwell in the body that is subject to sin. For the Holy Spirit of discipline will flee deceit. And remove from thoughts that are without understanding, and it will not abide when unrighteousness cometh in. For wisdom is a loving spirit, and will not acquit a blasphemer of his words. For God is witness of his reins, and a true beholder of his heart, and a hearer of his tongue. For the spirit of the Lord filleth the world, and that which containeth all things hath knowledge of the voice. So, when you get to the Proverbs, we hear of a character called wisdom, yes? And wisdom speaks. 
And then you get into the second temple period and they say that, yes, wisdom is, is some sort of figure, except that wisdom is paired with who? The Holy Spirit. Right? The wisdom and the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the Lord all suddenly coalesce into, into Jewish texts. As they're trying to say, how is God speaking to his people? How do we feel him? How, do we, how is he present? And so wisdom is a loving spirit. The spirit of the Lord fills the whole earth, not just a sanctuary, not just a mountain, not just a bush. In seven, for wisdom, which is the worker of all things, taught me. For in her is an understanding spirit, holy, one holy, manifold, subtle, lively, clear, undefiled, plain, not subject to hurt, loving the thing that is good, quick, which cannot be lettered, ready to do good. And I've lost a page. Uh, can I have? Yes. It is kind to man, steadfast, sure, free from care, having all power, seeing all things, and going through all, understanding pure. For wisdom is more moving than any motion. She pathless and goeth through all things by reason of her pureness. So uh, in, 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 the, in the Proverbs, wisdom is something that we need to seek, and she speaks and she calls. But here we're beginning to get more of her, her gentleness, her purity. For she is the breath of the power of God, a pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, no one can no defiled thing fall into her. For she is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God, and the image of his goodness. And so the spirit, the wisdom is pure. She's everywhere. She's the spirit. She comes from, from God. And the spirit is also the image of God. So they begin to begin to put more characteristics onto the Holy Spirit. You have commanded me to build a temple upon the holy mountain and an altar to the city wherein you dwell, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle which you prepared from the beginning. This is sort of this idea that um, the earthly tabernacle and the earthly temple were just images of something that was in heaven. And wisdom was with you. Wisdom was pre-existent. Wisdom was already up there. She knew thy works and was present when you made the world and knew what was acceptable in your sight and right by your commandments. Send her out of the holy heavens and from the throne of glory, that being present she may labor with me and I may know what is pleasing to you. So here's this prayer of, uh, of actually Solomon saying, send your wisdom, which I know was with you when you made the world, send her to me so that I can, uh, can do all things. For she knows and understands. She will plead soberly in my doings and preserve me with power. So shall my works be acceptable when I will judge the people righteously and be worthy to sit at my father's seat. For what man is he that can know the counsel of God or can think what the will of the Lord is? For the thoughts of mortal men are miserable and our devices are but uncertain. For the, uncorrupt, for the corruptible body presses down the soul and the earthly tabernacle is weighed down the mind that muses upon many things. And hardly do we guess aright at things that are upon the earth, and with labor do we find the things that are before us. But the things that are in heaven, who have searched out, and thy counsel, who has known, except you give wisdom and send your Holy Spirit from above. So we've taken a concept called wisdom in the Proverbs, where they've explored it as uh, coming from the Lord, as being present with the Lord, as being able to actually be in heaven before. You actually can call on wisdom. And then as we continue to ex explore it, we turn it into the Holy Spirit.
So the Holy Spirit is everywhere. The Holy Spirit was there at the beginning of creation. The Holy Spirit is with heaven. The Holy Spirit will come down and give you wisdom. So this is uh, not what you find in the Hebrew Bible, but you can see they're beginning to discuss uh, some things that were, that were in the Hebrew Bible. And one last uh, um, passage is from um, Qumran. Everybody knows who used to live at Qumran? Essenes. Possibly. I don't think so. I think that they were um, actually... Well, yeah, priests. So when we get to the Maccabees, what do the Maccabees do? They change the priesthood. Right? They put themselves as priests. So you had... Who were who supposed to be the, the true descendants of... The true priests of God? Descendants of? Yeah. Zadok. Zadok. Aaron, Levi, they're supposed to be from a certain family line. The Maccabees come along, and after they liberate the Greeks and begin to reconquer uh, the people around them, including the Galilee, right? they are the ones that go up into the Galilee and force convert everybody who's living up there okay? and uh, start to repopulate it um, with Jews, because prior to then it was, it was Gentiles. The Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay? So they move up and they begin to repopulate it. Um, they decide that they're living in the Messianic age and uh, we're going to make some changes. So they make themselves kings, except that kings of Israel are supposed to come from the line of? David. Yep, and they do not. And then they change the priesthood. And so they corrupt the priesthood. Instead of having the priesthood to be a lineage, it begins to be bought and sold. So by the time you get to Jesus, the priesthood is corrupt. Not everybody uh, leaves, some stay. But some flee, and they flee in all directions. Some go to Egypt, where they rebuild another temple. Some go north, and some go down to the desert, where they start writing all nasty books about everybody who's still in the temple. Right? That's what they do. They write some nasty stuff. But they also make commentary on the Bible, and they produce uh, a book of Psalms. And here's one of their Psalms. Um, and this, for, for purposes, is... Um, 1QH8. So, Cave 1, Qumran, Hymn, Scroll 8. <coughs> thine, thine is righteousness, for it is you who have done all things. I know that thou makes the spirit of the just, and therefore I have chosen to keep my hands clean in accordance with your will. The soul of your servant uh, has loathed every work of iniquity, and I know that man is not righteous except through you. And therefore I implore you, by the Spirit which you have given me, to perfect your favours to your servant forever. Purify me by your Holy Spirit. Draw me near to you by your grace, in accordance to the abundance of your mercies. Grant me the place of thy loving kindness, which you have chosen for them that love you, and to keep your commandments. They can stand in your presence forever. So this is a prayer. And when you want to draw close to God... How do you do it when you're living down there in Qumran? Do you offer a sacrifice? No. What do you do? You appeal to God to send His Holy Spirit to purify you, to make you clean, to draw you into His presence so that you have the power to stand in His place. This is a Jewish prayer, 100 years prior to Jesus. So when I... So when you talk to Jews, if they ever say, oh, Jews never talked about a guy called the Holy Spirit. We never had a concept like that. That's a New Testament thing. It's not true. Okay? They have a very well-developed concept of the Holy Spirit. 
They know that he is active. They know that he speaks. They know that he was pre-existent. They know that he was there at creation. And not only that, he can purify you. He can make you holy. And he can bring you into the presence uh, of the Lord. So this gives, hopefully, a bit of background as we're leading up into the book of Acts, which we will start very soon. But one little last piece, the Shekinah. Everyone's heard of that? Okay. You will not find the word Shekinah in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't exist. Um, it, is a, it is a rabbinic literature, which uh, starts around 200 years prior to Jesus and finishes around 600 years after Jesus. Uh, it's, uh, it's from the verb Shachen, which means to dwell. It became interchangeable with the Holy Spirit when the rabbis were trying to describe how God actually came and spoke or on the planet, they will call it the Shekinah came and did it. The Shekinah was present. And sometimes they will say the Holy Spirit. They will actually use the same word interchangeably. Um, and uh, for example, uh, in, in, the, in a Midrash on the Song of Songs, they ask the question, when did the Shekinah ever dwell on the earth? And they will say on the day that the tabernacle, tabernacle was set up. The tabernacle was made of skin and the Shekinah lives inside skin. Right? That sort of idea that God wants to dwell with humans. Right? Okay. Any questions about, uh, about that? Alright, so I'll, I'll make a few notes uh, on, uh, on Second Temple period uh, uses of the Holy Spirit and how they begin to, to see that the temple, God used to live inside a temple in terms of honor and glory and operated in the world in a spirit. Ruach Elohim. Right? When God, uh, in, the, in Genesis, it says the Spirit of God did what over the water? Hovered. Hovered. How did he hover? Okay. So a Jewish commentary? Like a dove. Okay. That's one of their comments. They say he was like a dove. Flapping over the waters. Yeah. And so when John the Baptist sees the Spirit of God coming down, he says it was like a... The dove. Okay, so there's all these comments that are reappearing in the New Testament. Okay, so you have this idea that God's a, God's God's a, speaks from a cloud. That's where His presence is, and He operates by His Spirit, the Spirit of God outside. However, then we destroy the temple. That's a problem. Whereas God, so they begin to say that the Spirit of God, well, that actually was already pre-existent. Not only that, that's actually a part of God. The Spirit of God is is produced by the Lord. He was with God at the beginning. He actually is a manifestation of God and he is actually God. And so this all develops in the Second Temple, in Turkish Second Temple period, calling him different, different words. I mean, in Rabbi's for it's called Shekinah, but in other texts, the Ruach HaKodesh, sometimes wisdom, but Proverbs does the same thing. And, uh, and then eventually they just rest on the word, the Holy Spirit, which is where we pick it up. Finally, we have the term the Holy Spirit, and Luke knows all this because he's going to use it the most. He actually is going to use this more times than everybody else put together. So Luke, for Luke, the Holy Spirit is very active in, in, in the community. So let's read the first 11 verses of Acts and see what the Holy Spirit does. So I'll begin, we read one verse at a time, and we just go around the table, and it does not matter your version or language.
So, Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to... Oh, sorry. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. Verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but he shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. I know the When they therefore were come together, they asked for him of him, saying, Lord, while thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel, and he said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them, and white appeared. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, that's where we'll stop it for, for now. Okay, so we begin um, with Luke addressing uh, his uh, uh, the correspondent, Theophilus. So in my former book, Theophilus, we assume that that is uh, Luke. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Okay, so who is Theophilus? Any ideas? That's what his name means, yes. So, any, any ideas? Something to do with Paul's case, case? Could be. So I'll let um, uh, Neville get up and share some of your thoughts. Okay. Um, well, you know, it comes in the first few verses of Luke's Gospel. And then, obviously, what we've just read in, in the first uh, verse of Acts. But in, in its occurrence in... Uh, verse 4 of Luke chapter 1, he uses the phrase, most excellent Theophilus. It's a little bit more formal, and it um, indicates that Theophilus is in a position of authority and deserving of respect. And what I think is a little bit interesting is that the phrase, most excellent, used for people, is used for two other people in the book of Acts, the governors of Judea, uh, Felix and Festus. In other words, they have authority, but also they are, um, they are in the, they're called that in the context of, of Paul's hearings, his preliminary trials for them in Caesarea. 
this is about in chapters 26 and 27, I think, thereabouts, of Acts. So, um, it may be, okay, it's perfectly reasonable to think of most excellent as a phrase you would use for someone who is presiding over a court, but it's not just used in that way. Not, that's not exclusively its use. But what is interesting is that by the time we get to Acts, this formality has dropped a little bit, and so he's in slightly more familiar terms with Theophilus. He doesn't need to use that title. So why do you think that might be? Um, so the, the term excellent, most definitely, is used as someone who's in authority. So Luke is writing to someone in authority. Yet, when he comes to writing Acts, perhaps the guy's position has changed. You're no longer in authority. Or has as much. Because he will use the term most excellent in Acts, but not to Theophilus in Acts. Okay, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, if you are English, all those English people can stick their hands up. Okay. Um, what do you call a duke? How do you address a duke? What's the, the, the term? First of all, what do you call a king? Let's start there. Your Highness. Your Highness or Your Majesty. Okay. Um, and when you come down to an earl, you know, the little guys at the bottom, it's my lord. Okay. What do you call a duke? Anyone know? Your grace. What do you call an archbishop? Your grace. So in, in, in English circles, not just in English circles, but I'm using English because that's what I speak, religious figures have the same rank as a lord, which means that in the House of Lords, bishops have the same rank as a duke. When they, when they walk, walk into a room, there's a duke and there's a bishop, and they are equal. Okay? One is temporal, one is spiritual. And in the English tradition, they make sure that they are given, one is never too higher than the other one. So, it's possible that our dear Theophilus got the term most excellent because he was of high rank, but it could have actually been a religious figure. Okay? Yet, by the time he gets to Acts, he doesn't have that anymore. And Luke knows this and actually doesn't give him that title. It's possible, but it might not be true. It could just be, more simply, he was quite familiar with the guy. It's possible. But I'm not 100% sure, because he does use the term excellent in Acts, just not for Theophilus. So, it is possible that Theophilus, and I'm getting a little more convinced every time I look at it, that uh, Theophilus is engaged in the defense of Paul, and, uh, and, 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 and so much so, because he actually had a position of authority with which to go and speak in this case of Jewish Christianity. The only person we know in human history with the name Theophilus is who? Do you know? Lingling? In your garden? No? Okay. A guy called Theophilus ben Ananus. Ever heard of him? Fair enough. Um, <laughs> Josephus records that uh, there was a guy called Theophilus ben Ananus who was the high priest of the temple between the years 36 and 41. And so for a brief moment in time, the guy was uh, actually a most excellent and he was the high priest. And so Luke actually addressed his first book to him, 
describing all the, the goings forth of Jesus. And this may explain why in Luke's gospel, that's where all the temple stories are. So you have Jesus going as a baby into the temple. He has his Pidiata Ben in the temple. He has his, what would look like a bar mitzvah in the temple. He goes in to have a blessing by Anna and, and, uh, and Simeon in the temple. Uh, he uh, challenges the Sadducees. He has debates with them. Uh, he says positive things about the temple. In fact, the very last word of the book of, of Luke is temple. They came down off the Mount of Olives and went into the temple. Okay. Later on, so this guy is educated, smart, and knows what's going on. So he actually might be a good candidate to defend Paul. And so Luke appeals to him and says, you know, look, I told you everything else. Here's some more stuff. But he, of course, he can't give him his title anymore because he's no longer uh, the, uh, the leader of the temple. Uh, it's possible. It also, everything I just said could also be completely untrue. Okay. Um, anyway, so that's a couple of op op options for who this book is. Who this book. It's not just a, not just a pretty name. Mm -hmm. All right. And what do you think of speaking in tongues? What do I think about speaking in tongues? Uh, well, when it gets to that passage, we can we can do it, but it's uh, we're not there yet. But I'll can address that when it when it's time. Theophilus just means beloved of God, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like one of the names <coughs> of Solomon was Yedidia, good friend of God. So it's uh, a lot of people had names that. In fact, everybody has a name that means something. It's very hard to say anything in Hebrew that doesn't mean anything, and also with, with languages like Latin or Greek. In fact, most languages have a meaning. In fact, everybody probably could go Google their own names, and it would be meaning in something. Welsh, Gaelic, you know, Old Swahili, uh, all, all those kinds of cool names. Okay. Um, Theophilus also had a uh, granddaughter called Joanna, who is also mentioned in Luke, okay, as one of the disciples of Jesus. Okay, when, when Luke is describing all the women who actually pay for the ministry. Right? Luke's actually uh, quite good like that. You always want to know who actually paid for Jesus' work and who was it? Those are the rich women, okay? Which I think is exactly how you should do ministry these days. <laughs> so, girls, you've all got to go out and make the rest of us lots of money so we can go about and do the work of God. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to edit that out. <laughs> yes. Okay, um, so, verse 2. So, uh, so Theophilus... I've written all these kind of things already uh, to you about all the things that Jesus has done uh, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions how how does did Jesus give his instructions through the Holy Spirit there you go so what does the Holy Spirit do that's the first time we get the mention he instructs okay so um, I'm wondering whether Jesus, in his 40 days when he's teaching his disciples, he's, he can be working with them differently, because we read that in the end of Luke's Gospel that he breathed on them and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. Or at least he opened their understanding that they will understand stuff. And John refers to it 
on that resurrection day appearance is that he said, receive now the Holy Spirit. So it's as if they had a new, they had the indwelling spirit to teach them during that time where Jesus was appearing to them. But he didn't, he, we get the impression he wasn't with them all day, every day. I mean, they're up in Galilee and it says this was now the third occasion when he appeared to his disciples. So it seems, you know, he appears with them and there's a gap between. And I'm wondering whether what he's doing is getting them, speaking to them, now that they have the Holy Spirit, that they, that they can know what it feels like to feel the words of God resonate with the Spirit within them, such that when Jesus is not with them, he can still communicate. They can practice understanding and receiving things through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is maybe relying on, you know, that he and the Spirit are working together for these 40 days, teaching his disciples things, and they are grasping things so much faster and more profoundly than the three years previous. Put together. John, John kind of drives it home in, in 1 John 2 and 27 when he says, And you need not any man should teach you what the very Spirit of God would be teaching us. Not that he uses people, certainly, but it's the Spirit that's teaching each of us and using other people. Yep. But it's the Spirit and the discernment we have to say, Amen, or to say, Hmm, well, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice if we had more of that? It might stop our churches from going wacky and and, and not doing their job. So why do, do, do they quench the Spirit? That's a good um, question. <laughs> yeah, I No way we can probably answer that, but yes, why do we? But we do. So we have first mention of, uh, of the Holy Spirit and His work through Jesus is that Jesus Himself is teaching His disciples, not in and of his own power, but by the Holy Spirit, okay? which, which is not something that you sort of find in the, in the Gospels themselves. Jesus doesn't sort of walk up and say, hey, I'm about to talk to you, but by the way, it's all from the Holy Spirit, okay? So please listen. It's, but he you does do say get... it's from, from the Father, I speak, the words that I speak are not mine, but... Sure. Yes, yep, and then in the, in the, in, in the book of Acts, in our, in our sacred history, right, the bit that's given to us, the, the history that we have, as opposed to any of the other histories that could have been out there, it begins by saying that uh, Theophilus, Jesus spoke to his apostles, you know who they are, those are the ones he has chosen, and he instructs them, giving them commandments through the, through the Spirit, through the Holy I think Spirit. it must be very interesting for the, 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 the first believers, they, they are exercising how the Spirit is enacting in their spirits. That's what she, she sister just said, that, do not quench the spirit. Yep, that's Action actually a, a command in a experience. And they don't know which is from the soul, which is from the spirit. And she, so Jesus is, you know, is, the disciple are encouraged not to quench the spirit. Means that you have the spirit. Yep. That the law of the spirit was activated in us when you receive it. So don't quench it, would rather say, should I say that? Don't quench the spirit. Don't ignore the spirits in you functioning in a different way because could you've be. never had this before. Should, could it be this way? Could be. Could be? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah the, could be. the problem is that people mm -hmm. attribute things sometimes to the Holy Spirit to not through the Holy Spirit. Correct. That's the, that's the problem, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the great 
issues of our of our of our dealing with the Holy Spirit is we don't understand what it means to test him. I mean we think we do. And sometimes we, we even create rules of how to do it. But then usually what happens is we actually ignore every, every one of those rules. Um, as we get into, into chapters like Acts 2 and uh, 3, uh, we'll bring in um, a, a book called the Didache. Now, I know we've read it in this class before. The Didache is called uh, the Teaching of the, of the Apostles. And they have a chapter on, on the Spirit, how you actually test prophets and the Spirit. Um, so you can have a glimpse of how the early church decided what was from the Holy Spirit and what wasn't. And then unfortunately in, in, in our current day, now this is a massive generalization. We don't do it. Um, maybe because we're not 100% sure how to do it. But uh, how, how do you think we would test? If the prophesy agrees with the Bible. Okay, agrees with the Bible? Yes. That's one way. Glorifies Jesus. Glorifies Jesus. Okay, another way. What would be some other ones? That the prophet also bears the fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit. Like you can actually have a look at the prophet and say, okay, well, uh, I don't see much love, joy, peace there. Okay. What would be some other uh, other good ones? Well, the, we use the word discernment, but actually it's discernment of spirits. Yeah. So and then, also fruit. Um, having lived here for a fair bit of time, uh, you meet all kinds of people. Um, and people come and they say, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit told me to sell my house and I did that and I've moved to Israel and I'll be here for the rest of my natural life. Or until Jesus comes back, which is sometime next week. And then six months later, they say, no, the Holy Spirit told me to go back to America. And you think, wow. I don't think you're talking to the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit told you to sell your house and that you were going to come and live here forever and then changed his mind, that's not the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. No. And, uh, but, uh, that would be, but we don't do that. I'll admit that I don't do that sometimes. I'll stand in front of people right in front of my face who I've worked with and then they'll say, the Holy Spirit told me to go do something else. And you're thinking, this is not the Holy Spirit. The first one wasn't the Holy Spirit, and probably this one wasn't the Holy Spirit. You need to line this up with some scripture. You need to have some discernment. We need to work this together. The Holy Spirit, uh, I think also, but I haven't come across it in the text yet, I think the Holy Spirit works with groups, not just individuals. I think what we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, I think you'll see the Holy Spirit working with individuals, yes, but also with, with groups of people. Okay, you'll find uh, terms like the apostles did this, the disciples did this, as opposed to just one, one person. All right, so here we have uh, our first glimpse of Jesus giving his commandments to some apostles, and it's through the, it's through the Spirit of God. Okay, verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. He spoke about the kingdom of God. All right. So something was so important to Jesus that he stayed on the planet another 40 days teaching. 
right? He didn't just get up and say, hey, Goldie, there's some holes, <laughs> and uh, I had to get a new shirt and everything, and it hurt, and I'm not going to do it again, and uh, see you in a couple of thousand years. Good luck. Doesn't do that, does he? He gets up, he shows you that he's alive. How does he prove that he's alive? Could the two men walking on the way to the Imamus was a way Jesus teaching people how to open their spiritual life, eyes. Because the two men continued talking about what happened that day, remember? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were walking with Jesus and couldn't find him. Right. Then later, um, they suddenly understood during the meal that opened their eyes. So could Jesus during the 40 days keep doing things like this? In order they will understand how the functional spirit in them. The, he says, what does the actual text say? What does what is, what is, what is Acts tell us? What does our sacred history tell us that he did? He told them about the kingdom of God. Right. So he, he spoke about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Right. And so um, uh, this term, Malchut HaShemayim, the kingdom of heaven, is not unique uh, to, the, to the New Testament. It does not appear in Hebrew Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. Um, the, the concept, the term, the kingdom of heaven, occurs in Second Temple period Jewish literature. So it's a concept that is already there. Jesus, when he gives us his parables, they always start with, how does Jesus start his teaching? The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. This is what it's like to live when I'm the king. And so he has this, this teaching. So, uh, and, and he, so he teaches his disciples. Then he dies. Then he's resurrected. And then he keeps teaching his disciples. Something was so important to Jesus that he's going to stay another 40 days on the planet doing this. And he wasn't just about to say, hey, I'm alive, I'm alive. Uh, see you later. Tell everybody about me. He actually is, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. Okay, and uh, now let's get back to the kingdom of heaven. And so it is true, and uh, it's been said at Christ Church many times, um, that we, the church, we preach Jesus as we should, but Jesus preached the kingdom. And so it would also behoove us to at some stage do a study on the kingdom of heaven. What is it? When did it start? What does it mean to live when God is actually the king? Um, because most of us don't live in kingdoms anymore. Us members of the British people in the colonies, we, we have a king, well, Queenie, and she's awesome! Okay. And we love the pageantry and the weddings and things, but we know what it's like to live as a king. Americans, not so much. Okay. They didn't like that idea, and so uh, they got the whole revolution thing going. Um, and how's that working out for you? It's great. Okay. <laughs> Ups and downs. Ups and downs on the king, Which is, you know, one of those interesting things. But um, in the Middle East, especially in this area, they don't do democracy. Okay. I mean, we do here, but of a fashion. Um, you, it's, it's the idea of, uh, of uh, kingdoms. And kings, and the ultimate king, of course, was to be, was to be God, and so that that concept was so important to Jesus. 
that he actually spends another 40 days on the planet teaching it. And sometimes we, I think, miss uh, what was actually important to Jesus. I think Luke picks up on it as well, in the sense that Luke is writing this down, but also he makes a point of referring to the kingdom of heaven in the last verse of Acts. In other words, Paul, in his house arrest period before his trial, it, it just says that um, over the space of the two years he was able to um, welcome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it's as if with this reference and the last one, the whole of Acts is bracketed by this understanding of this theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, in Jewish tradition, when did the kingdom of heaven start? When did God become king? The crossing of There's the always a king. The crossing of the Red Sea. Crossing that's one option. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. If you're a king, what do you need to be a king? You need to be crowned. Okay, who do you get crowned by? To rule. You need to rule. Who do you need to rule? People. You need to rule the people. Right. Yeah. So, so when does God start ruling the people? Sinai. Mount Sinai. Yeah. yeah, Mount Sinai. Because that's actually when the children of Israel actually know who God is. So when the children of Israel are actually in Egypt for 430 years, and who was in Egypt with them? According to Jewish exegesis, God. Right? God is in Egypt with his people. He's not waiting in Canaan. Okay, he's, not, he's with his people. What do the children of Israel know about God? They don't have a Bible. Not a lot, right. They don't know much about God. And even when you don't know much about God, who's with you? God. God. Isn't that a nice comforting thought? Right? What does it say in the New Testament? While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Okay? I didn't read the Bible and go, oh, Jesus, he's fantastic. And then Jesus goes, oh, wait, okay, excuse me. Runs off, hangs on a cross, comes back. Feel good now? Okay. It's, he had already done it. When I didn't even know who he was. Jesus said, my kingdom is not low here or low there. It's, my king, kingdom is within. Right. The power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will come again with glory. To judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Yep. So who will dwell in the kingdom of God? The righteous, of the course. saved, those who are in the book of life. Yep. I don't think anyone here would disagree with you. So that's the kingdom of God. Yep. Kingdom of heaven is wherever God is ruling and reigning. In your hearts. But there will be... So the kingdom of, where's the kingdom of heaven? It's here. in this room. And when we leave and go to our house, homes, where is it? It's there. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All the saints that are in China that constantly keep growing. Right? Isn't that a good thing? All the saints that are in Iran or Persia, all the saints that are in Iraq or in Kurdistan, all the, all the brothers and sisters that we have in Turkey with their dreams and their visions. You know, you can't stop. What, is, what does Jesus say? The gates of hell cannot stop my kingdom. Right? Nothing well, it's can. the jun judgment of God that will uh, establish the kingdom of God. Oh, he's already established it. Way, way, yeah. So uh, according to Jewish tradition... Because the kingdom of God can only have the righteous, right, righteous in it. 
Yeah. The abominable, the wicked, the home, her, home So are you saying that the kingdom isn't here yet? It's within us. By yeah, by so that means it is here. Christ. But this, uh, the, the kingdom that Christ will rule over is for the righteous. Right, it's the same kingdom. It's, uh, he's always a king. He never it's not all, all mixed up like it is... Uh, Things aren't going to be mixed up like they are now. If you're not found in the book of yep. life, yep. you're Thank finished. You. Yeah. Oh, I know that. The the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You haven't. You haven't said anything. I, I don't know yet. Um, the the kingdom of heaven, according to Jewish tradition, though not actually physically in the text, starts at Mount Sinai, where God reveals Himself, and that's going to play out again in Acts chapter two, where we redo Mount Sinai experience. Because Luke knows all the traditions that are, that are about, uh, uh, about Mount Sinai. And he knows that God is king and he's ruling and reigning. And his people don't always do the right thing. And there were punishments. And there were blessings. And there were some curses. And there were some good times. And there were some human kings. But God was always a king. And then the king appeared and kept saying, this is what the kingdom's like. This is actually what it's really like. When I, and, and this is how you live when I'm ruling and reigning. And it was so important to Jesus that he teach his disciples this, that after he resurrected, he kept teaching. That's how important it was. Right? He wasn't just, show up, okay, there you are, I'll be back soon, good luck. Right? He's actually going to uh, do, some, do some more stuff, but we'll pick it up uh, uh, next week. So wouldn't in, in the Old Testament didn't the word Zion, which is God's people, wouldn't that be a kind of a concept? Zion? Yeah, wouldn't that be a concept too of God's That's kingdom? actually not a Hebrew word. Yeah. That's Zion. A, a, Zion is a Hittite word. Because okay. it's a so King David Captures, well, actually, his nephew did the stronghold of Zion. Yes, so it was a name that the Jebusites had named the area, and the Jebusites uh, had a word which is calling it Zion, which in Hittite means the mark. Mark, M A R K. M A R K. But then in the but in the scriptures, it's it's also used to. Just yes. So what is what is king? Them. Well, yeah. So it takes it, 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 it. The word becomes something more than its original word. So its original word means the mark, which is very interesting to call your city. Like, what are you marking, right? Who were the Jebusites, and why does David not kill them? Like, when you enter into Canaan, what's the thing you do to all the Canaanites? You wipe them out. Okay. Well, actually, once we capture Jerusalem, what don't we do? You know, wipe them out. In fact, when you read the, the conquest in Samuel, they um, sneak up the water caves and then the city falls and then there's no talk of any massacre. In fact, what you end up with is David talking to Aravne, saying, I'd like to buy a threshing floor. Aravne says, no, I'd actually like to give it to you. No, I really have to buy it. No, 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 I'd really like to give it to you. Let's do a deal. And it says in Hebrew, they gave the deal melech la melech, which means king to king. So the Jebusites were there and they had a king. So oddly enough, 
at the, in the, the old city of Jerusalem during the time of King David. How many kings of Jerusalem were there? One of them was Jewish and the other one was Gentile. Isn't that interesting? And Melchizedek was really? there. Really? Yeah, Melchizedek. They just called Shalem back then. But so David, when he captures Jerusalem, he tries to rename the city. What is he trying to rename it? City of David. City of David, yeah. And, and it doesn't stick. People remember that it was called Zion. Why do they remember? Because there's a whole group of Jebusites still calling it that. And uh, it crossed over, and then David eventually gives up and says, Yep, great name. And he starts using it in his Psalms. And so it begins to take on a, a, a more, more heavenly term. It becomes to be called a people, it becomes to be called a throne, where God's ruling and reigning. Zion becomes multiple places, including your heart. Zion is here. So that has a it's a correlation with the kingdom of God, which would be in the New Testament. Uh, nope. There would be a correlation of none whatsoever. No, Zion's not the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.